0: You know, it just crossed my mind. You know, life, life is like April in Wyoming. <laughs> like April weather in Wyoming, isn't it? You know, there are ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. You know, one day you're putting on your jacket and your snow boots and throwing the sunscreen in the car on your way to, to the soccer field or whatever. It just, life is that way. And, and life was that way uh, for, for our characters in the book of Esther, for the Jewish nation, so many ups and downs, so many times where we see, uh, see them glorify God and, and, and you know that they've put their complete and total trust in him and then the next moment they're building a golden calf and worshiping it and saying this is what saved us from Egypt. I just don't, I just don't get that until I look at my own life and then I go, wow, <laughs> I get that because that's me. You know, one moment I'm full of faith and trust and, and I'm as sure as ever of God's faithfulness and, and truth and reality in my life and, and something hard happens or something that confuses me and the next moment I'm just a mess, broken. And, you know, the, the good news is, uh, you, you know, last week as we celebrated uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news is that we win in the end. Right? I mean... Amen to that. It, it's been an incredible journey uh, for Esther and Mordecai and for the rest of the Jews in this moment in history. As we've gone through the book, uh, I always hate to see a series come to a close because I've just been, and, and hopefully you too, we've just been uh, thinking and immersing ourselves in this, this one book of the Bible and these, these characters and, and their, their lives in, in history. And though Esther was taken against her will in the beginning, God raised her to the position of queen. Just like many he had done before, Mordecai goes from from being despised and hated and soon to be killed to the king's number two. A Jew, the king of Babylon's number two, if that isn't God moving, I don't know what is. Esther in her all or nothing risk is rewarded by the king with her request being granted. All of the bad that was in process through the course of the book as we've been reading, the storyline has now been reversed. And the, the, uh, the sad has been made untrue as we talked about last week. All that good though, and then chapter nine seems to spoil it. At least that's what I see. Uh, at least on the surface. Instead of, instead of what we often see in movies, everybody lives happily ever after. Instead of... Joyous delight in celebration of deliverance. It seems the conclusion of this book is very dark and very full of pain. I don't know if you've read chapter nine, uh, but it's pretty ugly. Uh, Judgment and wrath and bitterness. I mean, talk about moral ambiguity. We've kind of thought about that theme all along the way. I still got a green light. That doesn't mean that. What'd you do, Caleb? <laughs> I always say if you just turn something off and turn it back on, usually. Dude, I have a green light, but I don't. Not unplugged. You can try Can you hear me now? (laughs) It's, there's, it's, just give me a microphone. my least favorite thing to hold a microphone All right, as I was saying, moral ambiguity. You know the the Mordecai and Esther sometimes don't seem like they're making righteous decisions and choices. There's there's lots of partying, there's there's lots of drunkenness in this book and we don't know whether they're participating in that or not, but the truth of the matter is, even in the midst of the brokenness of those who, who love and serve God, God continues to work. And to me, to me, that's encouraging because that means he's working on my behalf as well because I continue to be broken and sinful and full of flaws and, and I fail. We see judgment and wrath and bitterness. So what is happening? What is happening in chapter nine of the book of Esther. Uh, before we continue, I want to at least acknowledge that if what I'm about to say is what's happening, it's understandable. I mean, how many times have we acted on the need to get even? How many times have we thought to ourselves, that person deserves what they get if it's bad? How many times have we judged others? How many times have we maybe struggled in life? We, you know, we've been the underdog week after week after week, and finally... Finally, we rise to the top and then we become just like those who, who were treating us badly when we were on the bottom. We, we, are, we find ourselves weak and not so gracious and, and we become mean-spirited ourselves and, and we justify our action. Could this be what's happening at the end of Esther? Are the good guys turning into the bad guys? Has the power gone to everyone's heads? What is the deal? All the the killing that occurs. Uh, Have Esther and Mordecai become the tyrants themselves? Is this a case of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. I think that's plausible, but I don't think that's what's happening in Esther chapter 9. And I'm going to give you some reasons why. I don't think that's what's going on. Let's, let's read the first 11 verses of Esther chapter 9. If you've turned there, please, if you haven't turned there, please do. Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. You see, Haman had signed an edict that said that on this particular day, and it was signed months and months and months ago so that they could get the word out, and all of the Jews and all of the provinces are dreading this day because they know that this is the day that they will likely die. For a long time, that's what it looked like was going to happen until God reversed that, and that's what he did with another edict after he turned the tables on everyone. It says, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Interesting that the king just couldn't strike down an edict that he had made, that was made, well, this one essentially was made in his name using his ring. It would have been so much easier if he could have just said, we're not going to do this. We're going to change that law. But instead he had to give a new law, and that new law said that the Jews could defend themselves. The Jews, verse 2, assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Remember, this is 127 provinces, including the nation of Israel, which I might add, as a side note, the nation, Jerusalem now has Jews in it who have returned and are in the process of rebuilding the wall. Remember some other information in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah about the Jews being given money and going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall? This is the same time frame. You know, when, when, God, when, when the Jews in that moment in time feared for their lives because their enemies meant to attack them? Makes sense? And God said, build with one hand and have a sword in the other, right? It is that time. It is that time. And it says that no one could stand against them. And all the nobles, verse 3, of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators, helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. We need to read that, I think, keeping in mind this was only as a defense of being attacked. They weren't, the Jews weren't going out and searching down people to kill. They were defending themselves. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and I'm not going to list them, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. I mean, this just isn't a warm, fuzzy part of history, is it? Uh, 500 men killed and destroyed in Susa, including the 10 sons of Haman. And then there's this second request of Esther. The king king is kind of impressed, I think. I mean, he's just a psychotic tyrant, right? Um, He's kind of impressed that this happened. And so he asked Esther, is there anything else you want? And I find it at first odd that she would say, well, could we have another day? Could we also tomorrow attack those who intend on killing us, and another 300 are killed within the city of Susa. All total in the rest of the land is 75,000 dead. Now, as we read this, we should be reminded of other times God protected Israel among their enemies and used them to judge and discipline other nations. I mean, he talks about how evil they were and how lost their hearts are. Which brings us to the place of where we recognize that, that there's a war going on. This, this is holy war. And as long as God is leading the charge, it is a righteous and holy war. We've, uh, people have attempted holy wars before in their humanness, and they, they ended in disaster. It was A scar on, on the face of Christianity, um, the Crusades. But that's not what we're talking about here. So let's talk about the reality of war. First of all, we see it all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? And it also, it's just always uncomfortable for me to, to talk about that. I mean, holy war in the Old Testament. One of the reasons the Jews were in trouble when Xerxes was king was due to a failed holy war. We're told of this several times. God commanded Israel to destroy the Amalekites. All of them. He didn't want anything of the Amalekites to be left. Women, children, men, property, animals, all of it was to be destroyed. But King Saul disobeyed. And that failure is likely why Haman had such anger towards the Jews. Haman was an Agagite, probably a descendant of the king Agag of the Amalekites who were commanded to be destroyed by Israel of God's command. And, And I don't know about you, but if my people were to be destroyed by another people and that was passed down through my people, I probably wouldn't feel good about that other people. That's where Haman was. First Samuel 15, 18 and 19 says this, and he sent you on a mission saying Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? The prophet Samuel says to King Saul. It was because of that failure to obey and execute a holy war on Agag and the Amalekites that Saul was then disqualified as the king of Israel. And now in Esther 9, we see Saul's descendants of the tribe of Benjamin, Esther and Mordecai, leading God's people as they, in a sense, rewrite the history of Israel with one of new obedience. In defense of their own lives, they seem to be involved in a holy war, this time against Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of King Agag. So it's not out of bloodlust or personal vengeance, though it can look like that on the surface. That Esther asked for a second day to chase down those who sided with Haman. But she is asking permission to do what Saul never did. She wants to complete the task of the holy war. Even putting Haman's sons on the stake after they were dead was a fate that King Saul and his sons experienced. You see, they were humiliated in a similar way on the walls of the Philistines. But now with God's power and arrangement, a great reversal has occurred. Now, war is ugly. And as I said, it makes me uncomfortable, but God is perfect. He is a perfect judge, knowing all things, and I trust him and his work. I trust him completely. Another sure sign that this was a holy war is the fact that no plunder was taken. None. Israel didn't collect anything. They weren't going into people's homes and killing them and taking their stuff, which actually is what those other people intended to do to the Jews. And I think that's one of the things that Haman maybe sweetened the pot with to try and stir up those who would go against the Jews. Oh yeah, well, they're so prideful. They're so sure of themselves and their God. And, and if you kill them according to the king's edict, which you're giving permission to do, you, you can also have their stuff. but God won out in the end, didn't he? We find many holy wars in the Old Testament and it's uncomfortable. People often will say, well, oh, you say your God is so loving. Well, what about, what about all those people he killed? Well, I don't need to defend him. He can defend himself. And he is perfect in doing so. I just need to trust him. We just need to trust him. Another observation is that this is a graphic demonstration of a war that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. Look up here at the screen, Genesis chapter 3.15, and I want to remind you, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the ongoing spiritual battle that we are involved in every day. Good versus evil, Satan versus God, a second kind of holy war. And I think the most important one, as we look at this today, is the holy war that occurred on Calvary. We just celebrated it last week. Cain versus Abel. You know, it's amazing how much Cain and Abel come up in crossword puzzles. Just a weird fact, but I, I do crossword puzzles, and it's interesting how often they will lean on biblical characters for the answers to their questions. Anyway, that was sort of weird. Cain versus Abel, Jacob versus Esau, Isaac versus Ishmael, Israel versus the Amalekites, Saul and King Agag, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews versus Haman and his allies. All human expressions of the battle that began in the Garden of Eden. And the war in which Jesus ultimately won against Satan himself. Colossians 2.15, Paul says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus overcame the darkness. Jesus produced the greatest divine reversal history has ever seen, but isn't it crazy how that happened? It really makes no sense in some ways. Um, he didn't do it by manhandling the enemy. He didn't do it by overpowering them. He, he, his triumph over his enemies was in the cross. He defeated the devil and all his allies, both supernatural and human, by dying himself on the cross. It wasn't Satan or us sinners, but Jesus Christ himself who shared in the shame of Haman's fate. Think about that. All too often we rise and want to rise with power and strength to overcome. But I want us to pause a moment and and just let this sink in. Jesus, the Messiah, God, the creator of all things. And the one who in fact has all of the power. acted as a servant in humility, submitted himself to death on a cross. They didn't force him on there. He didn't have to go. In fact, if you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, is there any way that I could not do this? But your will, Father, be done, not mine. An instrument of pain and shame, the cross, Jesus, was put on there in our place. We deserved it, not him. He went there in our place. And even though we know who wins in the end, even though the power of the resurrection is available to us every second of every day, we must also remember that there is a holy war in the Christian life. The pattern of the sacred conflict will continue until Jesus restores all things. And I know at at first that's pretty, it's like, will this ever end? No. No, not on this side of eternity. The battle is going to be there and it's going to be constant. There will be times where I think it will feel worse or actually be worse than other times. But we need to remember that we're in a holy war in the Christian life. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. We just recently did an entire series on the armor of God. We need it, and we need to be reminded. Finally, Paul says, "...be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." Our the, the spiritual battle that we are in is deep and dark. And against the principalities of the dark world, they manifest themselves in our actual physical relationships. We are at war. We can't go to sleep on that fact. We can't take... It for granted. We can't take our lives for granted. Satan will try to weasel himself into every weakness and flaw and failure that you've ever had. Have you ever seen that cartoon where the the person is laying in bed and and all of these these things are are popping up? Like, remember that time when you and you remember that time when you and remember that time you you and, and the person goes why did I ever buy a memory foam mattress right that's Satan that's what he does because you see he's out to kill and destroy that's what he was using Haman to do kill and destroy so we need to put on the full armor of God and, and we need to fight that with God's word the belt of truth Constantly wrapped around us. The breastplate of righteousness. Our justification and forgiveness in Christ. He justifies us. Battleshoes are the peace of knowing we have eternal life because of the gospel. John says, I tell you these things so that you may know that you will have eternal life if you are in Christ Jesus. The shield of faith trusting God no matter what the helmet of salvation that protects our minds and of course the sword of the spirit again the truth of God's word all of it not just the ones that we like or the ones that don't make life hard for us or the ones that put us in places where we may have to give up something many times we get discouraged in our conflict with sin In fact, many times it can feel like we will never overcome the vice that we seem to be changed to. I just can't get rid of it. That that we'll never be able to say no to that thing that always entices us. Why can't I? You know, and you're in good company because Paul said the same thing. There's this thorn in my flesh. It just won't go away. We're not told what that is. I think there's a reason for that. Because if they told us what Paul's thorn was, we would be able to say, well, that's not my thorn, so I guess I don't have one. But we all have one. We think we'll never be able to say no to that thing. Or, or maybe you're, you're living daily with the shame of a past decision and you long for deliverance. Like Paul says in Romans 7, 24, you are crying, what a wretched man or woman I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Or maybe you've grown weary of the ridicule of your faith in Jesus. There's a constant drone of degradation for what you believe and how you live your life. Maybe at work or school or or even at home. Maybe you're a, a young person who has surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you have parents that don't believe the same way and, and and every chance they get they try to make you feel like you made a terrible decision that God isn't real maybe you have a parent or a grandparent even that denounces the truth of the gospel in the presence in your presence every chance they get and you wonder I'm not sure I can go on with a relationship with Jesus Christ and God's protective armor with that, power. We do have the power. And don't you forget it. We have the power to crush Satan. Now, how can I say this? Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and cling to that if you are struggling in your life right now. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Important, under your feet. He will empower you to fight. He will empower you to win. Take take your relationship with Jesus seriously. It's it's the most important relationship you'll ever have in life. I know there are times we're convinced that other relationships are more important, but even Jesus himself said that those are secondary. Right? Even mother and father are not as important as son and father. Jesus Christ and whatever your name is. Remember that the holy war has been waged and won by Jesus on the cross and the promise of Genesis 3, 15 is one you can plead and pray for yourself because it has already been kept on your behalf in Christ. The God of peace will crush Satan beneath your feet because he has already done so at the cross. So do not give up fight on, love on, pray on, keep on keeping on in the knowledge that sin and Satan, cynicism and unbelief will not win because Jesus has already won. And knowing this, knowing that the great divine reversal took place on the cross brings us to what? How should we feel? What should we think? What should we experience in life? Knowing those things, living in the midst of those things. Well, they are part of our spiritual celebration. We worship our Savior because of these. It's joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. It cracks me up. I don't know. It's like a... For years and years and years, I have picked Kansas to win the national basketball championship at college. I don't know. I just thought they could do it eventually. Eventually. So the year that my daughter goes to Baylor University, I get a Baylor sweatshirt for Christmas. I should have worn it today. And Baylor wins the national championship. Now, there was a little bit of banter. I was, pretty, I was actually pretty calm with it with a few folks in the church because they were, you know, that other team's fan's. Don't give yourselves up over there. Um, they're like, well, if we had to lose to somebody, at, at least they were Baptists. <laughs> right? But here's the thing. Every time, and sometimes athletes are terrible at this. You know, they, they don't speak well publicly. Um, but, but every time that I watched him interview a Baylor basketball player at the end of the game, he would in some way mention Jesus Christ. Well, then I, then I find, and I didn't know this until all of the stories were beginning to be written that, that they had this motto for the year of their basketball team. And it was joy and joy was an acronym, which can sometimes get you in trouble, but uh, joy stood for Jesus, others, and you, and they played together as a family coach, solid Christian man, um, I don't remember, I, I think he's been coaching Baylor for 18 years or something like that. I mean, he's been, uh, seriously, the University of Nebraska would have fired him a long time ago. The patience of Baylor University to give him the opportunity to build a program. And, and what did they build it around? Yeah, basketball, yeah, sports, yeah, they're athletes. I get all of that. But, but there was an important core piece to their life together as a team and it was Jesus Christ it was Jesus Christ joy and gladness to be together and to be able to play I mean we feel that way sometimes right now one of the things that we learn from lockdowns and pandemic and all of that stuff that we hate and don't like and didn't want to do is that there is joy in doing normal things things that we maybe thought were boring before no really they're good and they're a joy. So there's, there's the old covenant joy and gladness, and there's new covenant joy and gladness. First of all, um, the celebration of Purim was instituted by Esther and Mordecai, and it was to celebrate two things. First, it was to be a time of remembering, lest we forget what God did here amongst us. You know, we don't want to forget that God intervened to save us from a tyrant king. The second thing they were to do on this day, actually it was two days, was rejoice. To celebrate the month that they had dreaded for months, the month that was to be therein turned into a divine reversal. Their sorrow turned to gladness and their mourning into a holiday. Their trials and conflict weren't over by far. But this festival would be one reminder of what God did for them and help them carry through that next difficult time. Esther, uh, verse 22 in chapter 9, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the to the poor. If you read further in chapter 9, as they established Purim, it was a very practical and political action. It was recorded in the annals of Babylon, in their history books. I kind of think that's akin to our Independence Day, July 4th, instituted by our federal government, something that we celebrate every year to remind us of the freedoms that we have, And who fought for those freedoms and how we gained those freedoms. And we do celebrate it year after year. We get time off of work. We have barbecues. We go to the lake. We burn up thousands and probably millions of dollars in fireworks. But do we really remember or do we really think about why it is that we celebrate our Independence Day? I I don't know. I think that can happen even in... Holidays and things like Purim, and and the good thing is that Purim was celebrated under the Old Testament covenant, and that with Jesus Christ we are now under the New Covenant. So today we don't remember the coverings over of our sins, uh, or the fact that we were saved politically or physically, uh, but. Not just the reversal of our sin, but the actual forgiveness of sin. And we worship on a Sunday morning, not on a Sabbath, an Old Testament Sabbath day. There, there is a new covenant of joy and gladness. It's true that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? If, if only I knew how the game was going to turn out, uh, I could, well, I wouldn't bet on it and make lots of money because I knew how it was going to turn out. That's not really fair. Um, and even though the old covenant hope and joy and gladness was a sure thing in what God was going to do in the future, we look back and we see what God actually did. And, and hindsight is twenty twenty. We know it happened. And we can bank on it. Jesus really did die and he really did rise from the dead. We, we weren't putting our hope in God that he would one day save us through Jesus Christ, we put our hope in the fact that he did. He reversed sin and death. Paul explains it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It was going to happen, Paul is saying. But it has now, and we waited for a long time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The light has come. It's been testified to. It's written in the history books. And and this is why we gather on a Sunday morning. This is why we worship and celebrate on the first day of the week because this is the day of the week that Jesus conquered sin and death. It was on Sunday that he rose again, which is why we can say, yeah, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. This is the day that he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Doesn't doesn't that bring you joy and gladness? Doesn't that make you smile? Isn't, I mean, isn't that great news? So in light of all of that that we've heard today, number three in your notes is let's focus our eyes on a better king. Verses one through three in Esther chapter 10 King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and, that's an interesting word, imposed, to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. Now, just when we think, great, it's it's coming again, it's as if the author of the book of Esther drops a fly in the honey. Because even though all of these great things just happened to Esther and Mordecai and the Jews, they are st- still subject to a tyrannical, psychotic king. He still has all of the power. He still has all of the political power. And they're all recorded. It's as if we are being reminded through the book of Esther that there is yet a better king to come. Yes, remember what happened. Yes, celebrate Purim. Yes, remember that though it may not be completely obvious, God is working and exacting his providence all throughout our lives and will continue to do so until Jesus returns. So, this is the so what for us this morning. May the king of our kingdoms not be us. Not be ourselves, but God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we turn our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. As I studied this week, I found, and and I didn't mention them by name, and I'm not going to go through them, but the ten sons of Haman are listed specifically by name. Well, I saw this week in my studying that... um, that in naming his sons in the Persian language, each name contained the word self. So Haman was so stuck on himself that he named his kids after characteristics of himself. I mean, he was kind of stuck on himself, wasn't he? And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to mention one, Adelia, means humble self. Have you ever known someone who is proud of being humble? I mean, Haman must have been like that, going around boasting about how humble he was. Have you ever seen somebody say, oh, I've given so much to charity, or, you know, oh, I'm all about this. I mean, we live in an age of self-promotion, right? Right? All of these sons were put to death. All of these selves were put to death. And that is so true, isn't it? Self must die. Self must die before victory is accomplished. Pride comes before destruction. And a proud spirit before a fall. Haman's pride led to his downfall. I want to leave us with this this morning. Haman tried to exalt himself, and he ended up dying. Along with all of his plans coming to nothing and all of his sons being put to death, Esther, on the other hand, remember what she said in chapter 4? If I perish, I perish this is the right thing to do and I'm going to stand for my people. She was willing to die in order to do what was right and yet she was honored and blessed and raised up as queen with her family and her people being raised up to honor with her. I don't know all the things there is to know about a tyrannical, psychotic Babylonian king, but the fact that he made a Jew number two in all of the land. The whole world has been out to do away with the Jews for thousands of years. Why? Have they succeeded? <laughs> no way. I didn't write it down, but just, well, not recently. There was a time when all of the Arab nations kind of surrounded Israel and they were going to do away with Israel for good. I was I want to say it was like in The 70s, maybe 74? Just read it this morning. And before it even started, while the world slept, the Jews, Israel, somehow, right, disarmed all of these Arab nations. Went nowhere. They failed. Why? Because they're God's people. And though sometimes it doesn't feel like it or we don't see it in an obvious way, he is still working. And uh, how many Jews do we have here today? Raise your hand. Yeah, none of us. Not one. There might be somebody raising their hand at home. Here's the thing. God says we have been grafted in. We are his chosen people, too. You see, Jesus died for the Gentiles as well. is that great news? I mean, if God is for us, who could be against us? And he is. So let's die to self now, like Esther and Mordecai, and receive blessing and honor instead of like Haman, who served self now and ended up losing it all. As Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Let's focus our eyes on a better king, on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, the reason we can celebrate together with joy and gladness. Hebrews twelve two fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in 2, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We don't have to taste it because Jesus died on our behalf. That should give you joy. That should give you peace. You are loved. I don't care what your circumstance is. God is working. We need to fight. And we need to stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for dying. Thank you for how, how you work throughout history and how you've shown us what you've, what you've been doing and how you've done it, and you prepare us and help us to just continue to walk with you. May we celebrate with joy. May we worship. And as we live our lives this week, may we be the light in someone's life. Not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others, serving others, loving others, forgiving others. Strengthen us with that. And now, with our closing songs, we worship you with our voices, our hearts, our minds. Draw us into the truth that we're singing. Help us to worship you in Jesus' name, amen.